This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, today, guys, we are going to be answering 17 pro-abortion arguments. But before we get into that, we need to do a little bit of an update because like I tell you every week, even after I get done recording these episodes, it's like something happens like the day after that episode that is newsworthy in the pro-life and or pro-choice world. So just going to give you a little bit of a basic rundown on things that we've seen here recently. We've uh, had Bernie Sanders and Kirsten Gillibrand. They're both running for the Democratic nomination for president in 2020. They both came out. This was actually today. I'm recording this on the 20th of May. They want a national law legalizing abortions up to birth. So essentially what they want to do is they want to take the law, the the unbelievably barbaric law that was approved and passed in the state of New York, and they want that to become a national law. Now, some of you might be saying to yourselves, well, isn't uh, Roe v. Wade, isn't that a national law? Don't have time to get into why that's not law. It's just a decision made by the Supreme Court. It didn't actually make law, but they basically went out of their way to say that they want that to be legalized across the country. And not to be outdone, Elizabeth Warren, who is also going to be running for president as she's in the process of running for president for the Democratic nomination, she actually announced a plan to legalize abortions up to birth, making it a national law. She, she's got her own plan. So Elizabeth Warren, her, her uh, candidacy is kind of dead in the water at this point. I mean, she's going to have to really see an unbelievable turnaround at this point. She's kind of been embarrassed and uh, she's not really hitting uh, hitting it off with a lot of the other people. But what she's doing is she's coming out with these very grandiose and very ridiculous plans to do these unbelievable things. And so this is one of her attempts in order to do that. We also see another Democratic president, uh, presidential nominee, Pete Buttigieg. He is the supposedly Christian uh, governor of South Bend, Indiana, or mayor rather of South Bend, Indiana. And this guy has been seen by a lot of people as a very viable candidate for the Democratic field because he's kind of seen as a moderate. You know, this guy claims to be a Christian, even though he's an uh, he's a married homosexual, those types of things. But he basically came out this week and defended abortions up to the point of birth. So again, as I've said before, and as we've said previously here on this podcast, if you're a Democrat, you are part of the party of death because this is a mainline platform now. This is a mainline platform. Name me a prominent Democrat who is pro-life. I'll wait. But then on the 16th of March, or 16th of May, rather, Missouri came out and their legislature passed a bill banning abortions after the baby had a detectable heartbeat. So this is another heartbeat bill. And the bill was actually passed 24 to 10, and it is expected to be signed by pro-life Republican Governor Mike Parson. So this came a couple of days on the heels of really the big thing that we're going to be talking about here on the early part of this podcast. And that was what happened on the 14th of May, where the Alabama legislature approved a bill making killing unborn babies by way of abortion a felony. And also it put abortionists, it would put abortionists in prison for up to a life sentence or 99 years for performing the procedure. So this is the strictest abortion law that has been passed. Really? I mean, we've seen stuff in Louisiana. We've seen stuff in Missouri. We've seen stuff in Georgia. And now this one in Alabama, this is the one that has the least amount of restrictions to it. The bill passed 25 to six governor K Ivy quickly signed the bill into law in the bill. As it stands right now, the law will go into effect within the next six months. Um, And the thing about this is the media has been lying a lot about what this law says and doesn't say. There's been a lot of people in the media that are claiming that this law would criminalize the act for women that have signed off on the murder of their babies, but this law does not do that. Now, we've said before on this podcast, and I understand this is a very unpopular opinion, even in pro-life circles, but I'm of the persuasion that these women should be held liable for signing off on the murder of their babies. 
Now, some people think there's a fine line there. They say, well, what if a, what if a woman miscarries? Then then what what happens there? Is is she potentially going to be liable for that life? No, that's not what anyone's saying. Like no rational think thinker would actually think that's what someone like me is saying. But if I walk into a store and I go into this section and I take a little kid with me and I say, hey, can you please kill this kid? I will give you $100 for your services. And they go, sure, sign here. And then they kill the kid. I'm liable for that kid. I'm liable for that murder, right? You've seen this scenario before where these mob bosses or gang leaders, they actually tell someone else to kill someone else and they are also held liable for murder. We've seen people that are just driving the car. Whenever somebody gets out of the car, murders somebody and gets back in the car, everyone in the car is charged with murder, right? So I don't think it's that crazy to think that these women that are actively going in and seeking out someone killing the baby that's inside of them, that these women shouldn't be held liable. But again, this law in Alabama does not touch that at all. But the big thing that made hay for everybody, especially on the left, is there there was no exceptions for rape or incest. And we'll get more into that argument here in a little bit, but that was the big one. That was the big one that really twerked off the political left or the pro-choice, pro-abortion, pro-murder crowd because they just, they couldn't fathom a world where a underage girl was raped and that baby wasn't murdered because of the rape. But again, we'll get into that here in just a second. But the Alabama law really has set up a real challenge to Roe v. Wade because we know that this law is going to be challenged. We know that it's going to go to an appeals court. We know that's going to go to a federal appeals court. And then from there, the idea is that it might actually make its way to the Supreme Court. Now, this is not something that's going to happen quickly. I mean, people are saying at the earliest it could reach the Supreme Court in like two years. But what this is doing is this is an affront to the pro-choice lobby. This is an affront to Roe v. Wade. And we've had these things happen in a lot of different uh, circles, and you've seen this in a lot of different states. It's kind of the incrementalist approach. Like, we're we're just going to do things little by little. We're going to do things here or there. And of course, the reason why that's an issue for a lot of people that are on that side is because if for whatever reason Roe v. Wade is overturned, it doesn't automatically ban abortion across the nation. It just takes the laws back to the states. There's no federal mandate saying that abortion is legal. And so if you've been doing these incremental approaches on your state level, and then all of a sudden Roe v. Wade is overturned, well, you've got all these allowances that allow for abortions to occur in your state beyond a certain point or for certain reasons, right? But then you have the other side of the issue, which basically says that if if you're not going to have any of these restrictions and you're just going to go right at the heart of the issue, are you going to be able to get it done on the federal level? And this kind of goes all the way back to when we talked about Justice Kavanaugh. Now, Kavanaugh was like unbelievably immorally maligned for things that he very, very likely didn't do. And it was an unbelievable circus. But at the same time, I was not a fan of Kavanaugh being on the Supreme Court from the begin from the beginning, because I never thought that this would be a guy that would actually vote to overturn Roe. And, and even just as a conservative, there's a lot of things that I think he does that are not going to make conservatives happy. And so if it actually gets to the Supreme Court right now, people think that there is a conservative majority of five to four. There's not really that. You have four votes that are ardently in support of abortion. You've got that right off the bat. But you only have three votes that are definitely in support of the pro-life agenda against Roe v. Wade, right? And then there's two kind of up in the air. And one of those is Judge Kavanaugh. 
And so that's that's where I'm sitting right here. Again, it's really hard to judge where things are going to go because this law hasn't even officially been challenged yet. But I really think that we're going to have an issue if it does ever get to the Supreme Court. And to be honest with you, I don't even know if the Supreme Court will actually listen, will actually hear this case. I don't really know that that's going to happen. But I will say this. Overall, I'm pleased. I'm obviously pleased that this is something that's happening because I feel like the pro-life lobby has finally started to to nut up a little bit. I feel like the tide is is actually turning a little bit. I feel like pro-lifers have been polite for way too long. And I think they're finally starting to get a backbone. And I don't know if it's because they they sense that their constituents will back them up or if they sense that, you know, the tide is turning or the overall reaction is turning for the nation. But the thing about the nation is most Americans have been uh, very much against abortion after the first trimester, pretty much for decades. Like nothing substantive has changed there. Right. We, we don't see these outsized changes even whenever we get, you know, new ultrasounds and 3D ultrasounds. We, we don't really see these outsized changes. Right. Uh, it's been pretty standard. But that's the thing that I'm really excited about is that more people on the pro-life side are willing to engage in conversations with people about this topic, even if they know they're going to take a little bit of crap and take a little bit of heat. We have more people being ardently pro-life because the thing about the, the pro-choice side or really the, the political left in general, they don't really have quiet opinions. Most of their opinions are pretty loud. They, they want everyone to know it's part of virtue signaling. It's like, everybody look over here. Look at how woke, look at how progressive I'm being at this exact moment. And so I see a little bit of that with pro-lifers right now, but, it, but we have morality on our side. Like we're for not murdering the unborn. So I'm really, really enjoying that. But but here's the reason for today's podcast. One thing that I've noticed about a lot of people that would consider themselves to be pro-life is that they are unwilling to engage in a conversation with people that are neutral or people that are pro-choice because they feel like they don't have the answers. They feel like, gosh, if they bring up this particular topic, I'm not going to know what to say. And that's not really sitting well with me because I'll be honest, uh, a few weeks ago, or I I can't remember exactly when, maybe a month, month and a half ago, we were uh, doing different uh, things. We were teaching different things in our Sunday school, right? And so I took the topic of abortion and wanted to talk to our Sunday school about it. And you could tell that the, the attendance for that morning, uh, they kind of warned these people like, Hey, two weeks from now, Kyle's going to be talking about abortion. Okay. Next week, Kyle's going to be talking about abortion. And wouldn't you know, it is very low attendance for that week because it's a very tough subject for a lot of people. But the thing that I, that I noticed whenever I got to this group is these are well-meaning pro-life individuals that love babies and love the moms and, and love Jesus and all these things. And I don't, I don't think you could really question any of that, but these people were, were completely catatonic when it came to being able to make an argument or being able to actually put words to why they believe the way that they believe. And so we had a really long discussion, you know, it got emotional at different points for some people in there, but the biggest impact, I think that that lesson that I was able to help teach in our Sunday school was I gave In Sunday school, I only did 13, but I gave them ways to answer pro-abortion arguments. And so in this podcast episode, I'm going to do a little bit of that. I added a little bit extra just for you guys, but we're going to be answering 17 pro-abortion arguments. And now just kind of give you an idea of how this is going to flow one through 17. This isn't rank ordering, uh, you know, here's the ones that you're going to get most often. Here's the pushback that you're going to get. No, this is more of a narrative approach. Because when I've had discussions with people about this particular topic, it doesn't usually start at the end or in the middle. It usually progresses towards a certain level. 
You hear me say all the time on this podcast that typically when you're arguing with somebody that disagrees with you, especially if they happen to be on the political left or the atheist left or whatever the thing might be, they're constantly moving the goalposts. And the thing is, is if you can't deal with that, you're going to have a hard time in that discussion. You've got to be able to have one of those. You got to be able to have the ideas ready in place that you kind of know where the conversation is going to go. So I put these in order in this way for this to be a reference for you, that if you're engaged in an argument like this with a coworker or a family member, even someone at your church, because here's the thing, you would be astonished at the pro-choice ideas that a lot of people in your church have. I'm serious. Like I've sat down with people and I've heard some of the things they said. I'm like, wait a minute, what? You believe that? So we're going to get into that right here. So we're going to go ahead and start with the first uh, one we're going to be talking about. And how I'm going to give this to you is I'm going to give you the argument that you would normally get. And then I'm going to give you a question in order to ask them in response. So I'm not going to be giving you a bunch of statements to make back to them. Like, ah, here's your gotcha. Here's your ace of spades. They're going to give you their argument. And then your response is going to be in the form of a question. You need to put them on their heels. They need to defend their position. Because again, they are not arguing from a moral perch here. They are not on a high horse. These are people that have a depraved worldview. And in order to deal with that, you put them on their heels. Okay. So here's the first argument you're going to get. Men can't have an opinion. These new laws are just ways for white men to control women's bodies. And so in response to that first argument, I would say this. What about the millions of women that agree with me? Because the funny thing is, is like, if you don't have a uterus, you can't have an opinion. Like, what are you talking about? The overwhelming majority of people that are in the pro-life side of things, they're the ones at the rallies, they're the ones at the pregnancy resource centers, they're the one in the counseling departments, they're women. There are literally millions and millions and millions of women that are pro-life. So when someone brings that up, it's such a silly way to start because they love to point. And I I think I can't remember what, you know, late night talk show this was on, but they showed a picture or maybe even been the view, but they showed this picture of the Alabama legislature that passed this bill into law. And if you look at them, they were pretty much all white men. And so it's like, oh, you see, it's it's the patriarchy and it's it's these racist white men that are trying to control women's bodies and da, 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 and all this other stuff. But again, it's a silly argument to make but it's an easy one to field because it's like, okay, let's say that we're true. Let's let me grant you that, that if you're a man, you aren't supposed to have an opinion on this. So y'all have it out with the millions of women that agree with me. That's an easy one to get out, get around. So the second argument is this, my body, my choice, right? I got a couple of responses for you. So if someone is making the, my body, my choice argument, you can say something like this. In what other domain of society is that true? Right. And you're going to hear some of this that you may have heard on episode six of this podcast. If you want to go back and listen to that, I did another episode on abortion there. But in what other domain of society is that true? Because I can swing my arms around in a circle in an open room and it's no big deal. Right. But the moment I start swinging my arms around and purposely hitting people with them, it's a problem. So let's say I swing my arms around and I start assaulting people and the police are called and they come up and I say, whoa, 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 whoa. My body, my choice, guys. I can do whatever I want to with my body. Guys, I'm still going to be taken out in handcuffs. I mean, that's that's the reality of it. You've seen me say before, something like that. If you go take off running down the middle of the interstate with no clothes on and you get arrested, you can't just be like, ah, my body, my choice. That's not how that works, right? So, so these people that think that that's some sort of a, a trump card argument, it's silly. But another response to my body, my choice is it's not your body. It's in your body right? 
That's not really framed as a question, but yeah, it's, it's not your body. It's in your body. Because again, this is new DNA. When the sperm meets the egg and makes the one-celled zygote, it's brand new DNA. It's not mom and it's not dad. Because you hear people now saying like, oh, well, uh, there's DNA in your sperm, so can guys not masturbate anymore? Or there's DNA in your fingernails, so you can't clip your fingernails. I don't think anybody is claiming genocide if you start clipping your fingernails, guys. There's DNA everywhere. But you don't get new life from clipping your fingernails. You certainly don't get new life from masturbating or any of those things, right? But again, what's growing inside the woman is simply that, inside the woman. It's not a part of the woman. Now, the life inside of her is sustained by her body, but the same can be said for born humans. You have to use your bodies to sustain life for them. You have to use your bodies to work, to make money in order to be able to buy food to sustain that life. So again, I've said something like this before. If I stick my finger up your nose or in your ear or something like that, I'm in your body. I'm not part of your body. You don't all of a sudden get to make decisions as to whether or not I can live just because I'm inside your body. It is a completely separate being. It's just inside the woman. So now let's go to the third argument. The third argument is this, is it's not a life. It's a potential life. It's just a clump of cells. cells, okay? So I got a few responses to this. So one response would be, what do you mean by potential life? Because one thing that's really important for you to do is when you're in a discussion like this with somebody is you have to define terms. Because if you start arguing about potential life and they've got a different definition, you're going to be on two separate sheets of music and it's going to be hard for you to get back on the same page. Okay. Just ask them, what do you mean by potential life? Just get an idea from them as to what potential life is. And so the other part of that is you could just say, you know, well, you're a potential life. Like there's, there's no guarantee that you're going to be living tomorrow. So you're still potential life. And if they don't like that, another response you could throw at them is, would it be fair to say that you are just a clump of cells? Because again, these people are trying to make this declaration that what's growing inside of the woman is, is basically like a polyp or something like that. But we're all technically clumps of cells. We constantly have cells that are, that are splitting off and dying and regenerating and all these different things, but it would be fair to say that we are a clump of cells. So you should get them to admit that. But the big question here that most of the people on that side of the argument can't answer is this. When is it, when is it a human life then? When is it alive? When is it valuable? And then you just get to watch them stumble all over themselves, right? Because they have a hard time defining that, which leads to argument number four. They'll say something like this. It may be a human but it's not a person, which the response would immediately become, when is it a person then? Because the thing about the, the political left is they've attempted to separate humanness and personhood. And this is kind of a new thing, actually, because they're starting to realize that they're losing the scientific argument. Because dum-dums back in the 70s, 70s actually believed that in the first trimester that that wasn't really a human. They weren't really sure what it was, but yeah, it wasn't really a baby, right? They, they didn't have that idea, but we don't have those excuses anymore. Like there's way too much evidence to the contrary. So have the person define when is it a person? They're, they're going to have a really hard time doing that. 
because the left, they love to kind of twist themselves up into knots. I mean, just like right now, they're trying to separate biological sex and gender, right? That's what the whole transgender debate thing. They're trying to separate those two things and they're having a really hard time doing it. Maybe because it's antithetical and anti-science. But again, you have to put them on their heels. When is it a person then? When is it a person? So one of the responses you might get, and this is actually argument number five that you're going to get from these pro-abortion people, is it's not a person until it's sentient. So for those of you where sentience may be a new word, uh, that's essentially the ability to perceive your environment, right? So using your sensory organs, and so that could be like suffering or pain or, or pleasure or comfort or, you know, basically, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. That's what sentience is, your ability to experience the world around you and, and understand what you're experiencing. So a response to that would be, is if you're in a coma from which you might awake, can I murder you? That's the Ben Shapiro argument, right? Because if you're in a coma, you are not sentient. Technically, if you're asleep, you're not sentient. So if your wife or the person, whoever you're talking to, if they were in a coma, just ask them, would you be angry if I walked into the hotel room and shot them in the head? Would that be a problem? Because again, sentience confers personhood. If someone makes that argument, right? Because another response you could give them is if you're someone with a mental handicap, could I murder you? If someone in your family had a mental handicap where sentience was in question, can I murder that person without any issues? Is my conscience clear? Am I morally okay? Am I lawfully okay? So again, if somebody is going to say sentience is the part when a person begins, they've got to be able to defend that for adults. They have to. So argument number six that you're going to get from these individuals will be something like this. It's not a person until it's viable right? So maybe they won't make the sentience argument. It's not a person until it's viable. This one's really easy to respond to. Just say something like this. Is a newborn viable? And you should be expecting them to look back at you like you're insane. But here's the thing. If you have a three-month-old baby and you leave them in the middle of the floor and you and your spouse leave and you never come back, that baby's dead. I mean, there's no two ways about it. And some people might argue, well, what if somebody like uh, your neighbor like knocked on the door and saw the baby and went in and helped it? Uh, okay, yeah, you're making the point for me. You have to have another human being intercede because the baby cannot sustain itself. Thus, it's not viable. I mean, a two-year-old's not viable. Four-year-old might not be viable, right? So it's not a person until it's viable. Well, well our baby's viable. The answer is no. Another response to that same question is if you are on life support of some kind, can I murder you? Right? You're, you're, you're kind of making these extreme examples to put it in their head. But if you're on life support, you have a machine keeping you alive. You are not viable. You're having to be kept alive by something else that is outside of you. If you're in surgery, right? And there's a machine keeping your heart going during surgery and something were to happen to you. Is it a tragedy at that point? If someone comes in and murders you, is that, is, is that actually murder? Or is that just somebody, you know, performing a procedure at that point? So that's an easy way to respond to the, it's not a person until it's a viable argument. And then we get into uh, number seven, which it's not a person until it's born. It's not a person until it's born. At which point you say something like this. Does the vaginal canal confer personhood? 
It's a fair question. Because pre-vaginal canal, or if you get a C-section while it's still in the stomach, you know, what is it? Because on the other side of the vagina, right, it's a person, right? Now it's a person. Now it's worth our protection. If you were to shoot a baby that just came right out of the vagina, you shot it in the head, problem. You're probably going to jail forever for that. But you got to ask them this as well. If they say it's not a person until it's born, what is it when it's still inside the body then? Like what's in there? Like, are we just like guessing? Could it come out as like, you know, like a zebra or a ficus or a Volkswagen? Like what's it going to be? If it's not a baby, if it's not a human, then what is it? And that's the thing, guys, especially for arguments four through seven. So that's, it may not be a human, but it's not a person. It's not a person until it's sentient. It's not a person until it's viable. It's not a person until it's born. You have to apply those same standards to humans of any age. So if you want to apply those standards to a baby in the womb, you have to apply it to adults. You have to, that that's basically how it goes. Because if you're an adult and you're not viable, we shouldn't be able to protect you according to their logic. If you're an adult and you're not sentient or or even a baby and you're not sentient or whatever, you should be able to be killed without any repercussions, right? So, and then what are the things are about this when people say, you know, it's, it's human, but it's not a person. Sounds like a, a a Tutsi argument or like what what was going on during Rwanda and you you have Nazi Germany and what Pol Pot was doing in Cambodia and, and all these different places. It's like, you're getting some of these same arguments. Like these aren't actually people, right? Like just, just think about that for a little bit. So that's kind of the first half or so. And then you start getting into some of their more desperate arguments. So let's get into argument number eight. Do you think that you can just force women to reproduce? You might get that one. That one's kind of funny, actually, because it's like, well, I'll just go ahead and say what your response should be. The response should be something like this is, are you aware that reproduction happens at conception and not at birth? Because, because again, no one should be forced to reproduce. Like, again, like if you're being forced to reproduce, uh, that's called rape, right? And it's without your consent. And that's horrible for a myriad of other reasons. And we'll talk more about that here in just a second, but that's not where reproduction happens. It doesn't happen at birth. It happens when you conceive. So after you've conceived, everything after that is ending of a human life up until the point of birth, correct? So argument number eight is easy to deal with. So let's do argument number nine. What if the mother's life or health is at risk? So if you start getting this question, you know you're starting to win a little bit. You know they're kind of turning into some of the more desperate sides of the argument, but To be fair, there are still people that would ask this question that are trying to be fair. So I want to be fair as well. So if they say, what if the mother's life or health is at risk? You say this, are you aware that abortion is never medically necessary to save the life of the mother? At which point, even your pro-life friends are going to look at you like, oh my gosh, did he just say that? But that's the truth. Abortion is never medically necessary to save the life of the mother. So if that sounds a little bit off to you, it's probably because you haven't heard something called the Dublin Declaration. Okay. So I just want to read the Dublin Declaration to you here really quick. Uh, It's just a few sentences, but I just want to read it to you here because it'll make more sense here in a second. As experienced practitioners and researchers in obstetrics and gynecology, we affirm that direct abortion 
the purposeful destruction of an unborn child is not medically necessary to save the life of a woman. We uphold that there is a fundamental difference between abortion and necessary medical treatments that are carried out to save the life of the mother, even if such treatment results in the loss of life of her unborn child. We confirm that the prohibition of abortion does not affect in any way the availability of optimal care to pregnant women. So these are people that know way more than you and way more than me about what it actually takes to keep a woman and or a baby alive during the process of birth or at any point during the pregnancy. But you do not have to kill baby. You just don't. So you, you heard this a lot whenever the New York bill was passed about late term abortions, how egregious that was. And people were always like, oh, so if a woman's eight months pregnant and if she gives birth to the baby or keeps the pregnancy that she'll die, it's a definitive thing that she will die, then you would be okay with that, Mr. or Mrs. Pro-Life. But here's the thing is if you're in the third trimester, you don't have to abort the baby in order to save your life. You just deliver it. The pregnancy can end without the baby being killed. That's why when people use these euphemisms with abortion and say, oh, it's just the ending of a pregnancy, birth is the ending of a pregnancy. You dope. Like it's, what are you talking about? But then you get a lot of the same responses. Well, what if the mother has cancer and she needs to undergo radiation and and the area that's affected by the cancer is in her abdomen? Well, we've seen stuff before where the womb has actually been removed from the belly of a pregnant woman so that she could undergo a medical procedure and the womb is then put back and she is sewed up and the pregnancy continues. We've seen that before. But here's the thing, guys, is if a woman has cancer and she's pregnant and she has to have radiation in order to save her life and because of the radiation treatment, the baby dies and she miscarries or stillbirths or something like that. That's not an abortion. That's not an abortion. Like you understand the difference. The point of the procedure was not to kill baby. It was to preserve the life of the mother. And if the baby happens to die, that is a very unfortunate side effect. But there are some that are even more specific, right? So one is one that you've probably not really heard of, but it's chorioamnionitis chorioamnionitis. So this is an infection of the membrane, a membrane that's basically surrounding the fetus. It is incredibly, incredibly dangerous for baby and for mom. So at that point, if mom has chorioamnionitis, you induce birth. The overwhelming likelihood is that baby will not survive, but it is not an abortion. It's just not. Again, you're trying to preserve life. There's a chance you will preserve two. There's a chance that you will be O for two. There's a chance you'll be one in one, but you're trying to preserve life. And the big one that people ask about is what about tubular or ectopic pregnancy? So that's basically where the pregnant or the uh, the the baby doesn't nest in in the right place. It nests in the fallopian tube or something like that, thus giving you an ectopic pregnancy. Again, very very dangerous for mom. A lot of times, in order to deal with an ectopic pregnancy, they actually have to remove the fallopian tube. So when you remove the fallopian tube, again, that is not an abortion. That is a medical procedure that is meant to protect the life of mom. Because in most of the instances where mom's life is at risk, which is an incredibly small percentage of the reasons given for abortion, incredibly small percentage, in most of those cases, you can just deliver. 
We've seen babies survive, I think, 18, 19 weeks being that premature. They're surviving and thriving years and years and years later. So again, don't get caught up in that. Don't get caught up in the emotionality of the argument of, oh, well, you know, the mother's life's at risk and, and you know, her, her life's more valuable and we don't even know if this baby's going to be born alive and blah, 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 and all those things. It doesn't even matter. Again, if you're in your third trimester and you have a major medical issue that makes it hard for you to survive, if baby stays in there, just deliver baby. It's that simple. So argument number 10 is this. What about rape and incest? And here's the thing, guys, before I get into any of the responses there, if they ask you this question, just kind of sit back and relax because you know you've won the argument. Because if they go to this, they're done for. And this is why. Because of the listed reasons for abortion in the United States. So if we're combining all the abortions that happen because of rape and incest on an annualized basis, it's less than one half of 1% of all abortions in the U.S. There's varying statistics, but it's less than 1%. We can, we can all pretty much agree on that, but it, it's even smaller than that. I've seen as low as 0.33% of all abortions are because of rape and incest. And just again, before we get into the responses, let me go ahead and list off for you the top six reasons listed for abortion in the United States. Get ready to get real angry, all right? The top six reasons, and these account for the overwhelming majority of all the abortions in the United States. Here we go, in order. Number one, not ready for a child or another child, or the timing is wrong. Number two, they can't afford a baby right now. Number three, they haven't completed their childbearing, or they, sorry, they have completed their childbearing. They have other depending children's, other dependents, or their children are already grown. They don't want to kind of go through the baby process again. That's number three. Number four, they don't want to be a single mother, or they're currently having relationship problems. Number five, They don't feel mature enough to raise a child or another child. They just feel too young. And number six, this would interfere with their educational or career plans. If you're wondering where I got this from, I got this from the Guttmacher Institute, which is not a fan of the pro-life side of things before any of y'all at me. But those six things that we have there can be categorized in one word, convenience. It's very inconvenient that I am pregnant right now. This is so very inconvenient for me. Again, it's not rape and incest. It's not my life's on the line. And so I just, no, I don't really feel like it. Ah, this is going to be hard. I don't know if I have the money. I've already got kids. I don't want any more, right? So when people talk about how hard it is for these women to decide to have an abortion, really? They're choosing between their educations being interfered with and the life of a human. Sorry, I don't feel bad for them. Okay. But let's get back to the question at hand, which is the argument. What about rape and incest? What about rape and incest? Here's a response. Are you willing to concede that all other abortions are immoral? Again, this is another Ben Shapiro argument because when someone brings up rape and incest, which is the exception of all exceptions, you know, less than 1%, less than one half of 1% of all cases. You have to get the other person to define whether they think other abortions are wrong as well. Because the overwhelming majority of the time, they will not concede that point to you. They just won't. They don't think abortion is wrong, but they're losing the argument. So they have to throw a Hail Mary. And the Hail Mary is that. What about rape and incest? But they're not willing to concede that. So another thing that you should ask them is this. And this kills the rape and incest argument. And it's this, should innocent children 
be able to get the death penalty for the crimes of their fathers. I'll say that again. Should innocent children be able to get the death penalty for the crimes of their fathers? Because that's exactly what you're doing when you execute a child in the womb. That's exactly what you're getting. Because here's the thing. There are cases where the men that, I mean, these rapists, they, they literally love abortion. Because if you discard of the fetus after it's, ab- it's aborted, if you discard of it, there's no DNA evidence left of the crime. So that person can't go down with DNA evidence because you've gotten rid of all the evidence, right? There are other ways that you can be caught, but it just, you just made it a lot easier for the rapist. But think about it in practical terms. Think about all you guys out there whose fathers are still living. What if your father could commit a very particular crime that would have the outcome of you dying? Wouldn't that be a little bit unfair? Because that's exactly what we're saying in the situation. Okay. But here's the thing before anyone starts to, you know, get crazy and think that I've kind of lost, lost (laughs) what I'm going with, with here. I'm not saying that these women are going through something that's insanely, unbelievably difficult. They've had a tremendous evil done against them. And I truly, truly have a lot of empathy for them. I'm very sympathetic to the things that they're going to have to go through. But killing the baby doesn't get rid of the rape. It doesn't punish the rape. It literally punishes an innocent third party. That is not mom and that is not dad. Because there's another response here to this. Is our humans born out of rape less human than those not born out of rape? Because there's a lot of babies alive today. Go go on Twitter. You'll find them and go on Instagram. These are babies that were conceived in rape that are alive today. That are in college and playing sports and they've got jobs and they're contributing to society. They have their own families. Their mothers love them. Their mother's families love them. And so when you, when you say that if a woman's been raped and if she's been raped by a family member, that having the baby is a net negative in every situation, it is to call those people that are currently alive less than human or less human than you because you weren't conceived in rape. So again, if they throw that argument at you, you've got to stand your ground. You have to ask them the question, should innocent children be able to get the death penalty for the crimes of their fathers? Just see what they do. Because again, I've sat across from people and I've said, no, women that have been raped, even if they've been raped by a family member, should not be able to kill the baby inside them. And I've seen them look at me with sheer disgust and anger, but I don't care what they think about it. I care about the lives of the unborn. Okay. Which leads exactly into argument number 11, which is this pro-lifers only care about the baby before it's born. That's another one. Again, they, they've kind of lost on every other front at this point. So now they're just throwing up Hail Marys all over the place, right? You just ask them this. If that were true, then why are there more pregnancy resource centers than abortion clinics? Because that's the truth. There are literally only a few hundred abortion clinics in the entirety of the United States. These are clinics that mainly do abortion. They're, they're basically just there to provide abortion. There are literally thousands and thousands of of pregnancy resource centers and emergency pregnancy centers and, and post birth, uh, you know, women's health and help centers, right. That are just for these types of of crisis pregnancies as they're called. Right. And here's the thing. The overwhelming majority of those are ran 
by right-wing, pro-life, conservative Christians. I had a guy, he's a friend of mine, uh, he lives in Philadelphia, he posted a George Carlin quote from a long time ago, basically coming at conservatives saying, ah, yeah, you don't want us to be able to kill the babies, but, you know, after they're born, you just don't care about them. Because what they're doing is they're conflating the conservative viewpoint that we shouldn't raise taxes in every scenario, and that there should at least be some standards around welfare and around uh, certain, you know, nanny state type programs, that that somehow means that we don't care about people. No, it's that we know the value of a dollar, and if you don't have a dollar to spend and you spend three dollars, you're in the hole. We also know that there's certain people that are gaming the system, and we're trying to get those people out of the system so that we can actually help the people that cannot help themselves. That is the entire point of welfare. But when someone says that pro-lifers don't care about the baby after they're born, it's ignorant. It's an ignorant argument. You got to call it out. All right, so argument number 12 is this. Have you adopted any of these children, any of these unwanted children? If not, you can't have a say. So the response would be this. Is it possible to have never adopted a child while simultaneously being able to have the opinion that innocent people shouldn't be murdered? I mean, it's just a dumb argument. So if you've never given money or food to a homeless person, does that mean you hate homeless people? Does that mean that we shouldn't fund homeless programs? If you've never adopted a dog, does that mean you're pro-animal cruelty? Like, it's just absurd because here's the thing is there's literally no way possible that every single person that is in trouble, including an orphan child or an unwanted child, can be adopted by everybody or being cared for by everybody. There's just not enough means in the world for the most part to be able to do something like that. There's just not enough capability. And there's a lot of people that would take on a crisis pregnancy and take the child that they just can't. They physically can't. They uh, they financially can't. But at the same time, there's a lot of people on the pro-life side that are lining up to adopt these kids. It's not the pro-choicers. If somebody is deciding between abortion and not abortion, and they decide to not have an abortion and instead put the baby up for adoption, there's not a whole lot of pro-abortion people out there that are waiting for that baby. It's pro-life people. There's examples, anecdotal stories, I, I will admit that, all over the place of someone's in a crisis pregnancy, and someone maybe puts it out online, and then you have a line of strangers that'll say, I will take your baby. You have people that are praying outside of Planned Parenthood clinics and they're saying, look, 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 just come over and talk to us because if you give birth to this baby, we will take this baby if you don't want it. We will take it. We will adopt it. We are strangers. We will adopt this baby. That's the pro-life side of things. So if someone's like, oh, well, you haven't adopted any. What, what have you done lately? Now, I will say this. The one fair thing is, is if you're sitting there having an argument with somebody and you've done nothing to support Uh, crisis pregnancies or these mothers or these babies or any anti-abortion lobbies or things like that, maybe that's an issue for you. Maybe you need to get in the game a little bit more. Okay. So argument, argument number 13 is this, even if the unwanted baby is taken to term and born, there wouldn't be a family available to adopt them. Okay. And the response here would just be, are you familiar with any statistical trends with adoption in the United States? Because here's the thing, and, and I'm not going to go on a diatribe about, about adoption, but adoption is a very complicated thing in the United States. The hoops that you have to jump through in order to adopt a child in a lot of cases are unnecessarily crazy. It's like way too much of an expectation on a lot of these families to be able to do these things. But at the same time, there are plenty of adoptive families available. I go into more detail on that in episode six of this podcast. So I would just urge you to go back and listen to that one. So argument number 14 is this. Abortion helps the economy. Yes, this is actually a thing that people have said. 
right? That, that abortion, it's just better if we don't have more mouths to feed inside of the economy, okay? So here's how you respond to that one. Are you saying that murder is okay as long as it's for economic reasons? Because here's the thing. Let, let's take a family of five. Let's say you've got a single mother of five, right? So dad's, dad's gone. Dad's a deadbeat, right? So the woman is doing all she can. She's working two jobs. She's paying for babysitters. She's got all these different things. And if she could just get rid of two of her babies, then her situation would be much better. It would really help the personal economy of her household. Would that be okay? If she just drowned a couple of her kids, threw a couple of her kids off a bridge, would that be okay? I don't think they'd be okay with that, right? But here's another one. This is kind of going to punch them directly in the face. So you got to really have some stones if you're going to throw this back at them. But if they say abortion helps the economy, your response should be, are you aware that proponents of slavery use the same argument that you're using? You can actually use that in a lot of different ways, because again, we said that, you know, black slaves in the United States, a lot of people said, oh, well, they're not really people, right? You know, that's why the Dred Scott decision was, you know, one of the two worst decisions in the history of the Supreme Court, the other being Roe v. Wade, because they basically would not allow people to be called people. And that's exactly what these slavers did in the South. They said, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you take away our ability to have slaves, it'll affect the South. It'll affect our state. It'll affect my personal wealth. It'll affect all those things. Yeah. Yeah, it will. Who cares? Because what you're doing is evil. What you're doing is wrong. It's immoral. So we're not going to stand for that, right? So why was it okay to not stand for it back then? But it's a problem if you don't want to stand for it now. You have to ask them that. All right, guys, a few more arguments here. Argument number 15. You say that you're pro-death penalty. That means you can't be pro-life. So this is kind of a new one. This is also kind of like a Hail Mary that you'll get from some of these people. But the response that you get is, are you comparing unborn humans to born humans that have murdered other born humans? Because that's what they're doing. If they're saying, oh, well, you're pro-death penalty, you can't be pro-life, I'm talking about criminals, because if you get the death penalty, you don't get that for stealing a pack of gum, right? That's almost 100% of the time because you took another person's life, and it was premeditated. That's another thing that will get you capital murder. Because here, we can actually go to the Bible a little bit, because God to Noah in Genesis 9, he said this, whoever shed the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So basically, if you shed the blood of someone who has the Imago Dei, if you're murdering that person, you have lost your right to life. And in Exodus 2, God says this to Moses, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. And again, that's not like, oh, well, I, I was, that's not talking about self-defense. That's not talking about war. That's not talking about any of those things. It's not manslaughter. It's talking about the act of murder. But the thing about it is, is you really got to put them on their heels. Again, you're, you're feeling like you're being questioned by them and they feel like they're in control if they're asking questions. You have to put them back on their heels. Are you comparing unborn humans to born humans that have murdered other born humans? Because I'm one of those people that thinks if, if you rape someone else, that you should also get the death penalty for that. But again, that doesn't really happen here in the United States. But again, they've got to have an answer for that. Because yes, I am pro-death penalty. I think it is a deterrent. It's clearly a deterrent. And at the same time, if that person has shown grace and given life in prison, okay. You know, it's a, it's a 
it's a waste on the taxpayer taxpayer at that person at that point, especially if the person is definitely guilty. And certainly there have been instances in the United States where people that were not guilty were executed, and that is beyond unfortunate. But again, uh, it's just a different situation. And so again, you have to put them on their heels. Okay, guys, last two arguments here. Argument 16. Pro-lifers just hate women. So of course, yeah, you just hate women, especially if you're a white male, Protestant, that's pro-life, just get ready. Like everyone's just going to completely diminish you. But even if you were, you know, a black, you know, female lesbian or something like that, it just, you know, you would still get crap for it. It's just going to be worse if you're on the other side of the issue. But the thing about it is, is the way you respond to that is, are you in favor of sex selective abortions? At which point they're probably going to look at you again, like you're insane. Like, what do you mean? Am I in favor of sex selection abortions? I'm of course not in favor of that. Say, well, there are countries all over the world that that's exactly what they do. You've seen that in China. You've seen that in India. China, China's, you know, one child program that they enacted for a while that they've since gotten more relaxed on. Sex selective abortions is just something that you do. Oh, well, this is going to be a girl. All right, we got to get rid of this thing. Like, I don't see any of the first and second wave and third wave feminists out in these other countries saying that's insane, that they should stop it, right? Like, they, they don't understand that the United States is basically in the same category as China and North Korea in terms of our incredibly liberal, quote-unquote, progressive abortion laws. Europe, a lot of Europe, which people consider to be way more uh, progressive than the United States in a lot of ways that they are, they don't even think the way that we do on abortion. They look at our abortion law and go, yee, that's a little bit sticky. But again, this, this idea that we just hate women, it's my extreme love of women and respect for the Imago Dei that they have that makes me so passionate about this issue, right? And that gets us to the last argument here, argument number 17. So you only want to demonize women. What about the men? Again, I went into this on episode six of this podcast, but this would be my response is, are you in favor of shaming men into sticking around? Because I am. Because people look at shame as, oh, that's, that's not really a good motivator. I'd rather someone be like really inspired to do the right thing. Okay. Well, if that doesn't work, shame's another good tactic because shame is something that works on a kid. You shame them into starting to think the right way or do the right thing. The same can be said for an adult male that has gotten a woman knocked up, got her pregnant, right? Are you in favor of shaming those men to stick around? Because I am. Like we've seen this before. I mean, the the out of wedlock baby having in the United States of all classes is insane. Fully 77% of black babies born today in the United States are born out of wedlock. 30% of white babies. That's a, a 10 times increase from back in the 60s and 70s. And half of Hispanic babies are born out of wedlock. It's a problem. Now, I, I think that could create some other issues if these guys stick around, but I think that those are minor issues compared to losing the life of the baby, right? Just murdering the life that's inside the woman. Because there's a lot of other things that we can get into, guys, because an argument you're not really going to get from a pro-abortion person is, well, what about the rights of the guy? Because this is a really good time to talk about what if the woman gets pregnant and the guy wants to keep it and the woman doesn't? Is it still her body, her choice? Because half of the DNA of the being that's growing inside of her is the dude's. Does he get a say? Because here's one thing he can't do. Let's say they get pregnant. She wants to keep it. He wants to get rid of it. She has the baby. Does he have to pay child support now? I mean, honestly, I I don't believe in these things. I'm just saying this is what a logical person would say. Hey, I didn't want this thing. 
Like it was her, it's inside her body. It's her body, her choice, but Hey, it's kind of my body, my choice. Cause I used part of my body to have this baby too. Right. But she chose to keep it. I didn't want to have it. So can I just pay her what I would have paid for the abortion? And can we could just call it good from there? Like nobody on the planet earth would sign off on that kind of a law. Cause it's insane. It's immoral. It's evil. But again, the, the overall point here, guys, is I want you to be able to engage with these arguments. So I want this podcast to become a reference for you. So if you've got other guys that are in the pro-life stable, you got other guys in your life, you got to share this podcast with them, this specific episode, because if you're not willing to engage in these arguments, you won't. Like if you're confused at how you should ask these questions, you won't end up asking them because here's the thing is, are there other arguments outside of these 17? Of course there are, but these are basically how these debates go. Whether you're seeing two people to debate it on a stage or they're debating it across a, you know, uh, the bar top from one another or something like that. This is kind of where they all go. These are the arguments. There is not a pro-abortion argument that makes sense or is just not evil. Like they're so easy to take down. We just have to be willing to take them down. All right, guys, before we let you out of here, we're going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know, by now we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. And specifically we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So today I want to leave you a few resources. First of all, I just want to give you the link to life news. That is www.lifenews.com. That is where you get the most up-to-date news stories about what's happening in the world of abortion. And especially it focuses a lot on American law. And so those are great ways for you to kind of keep up on how things are going. But then I got two articles I want to leave for you because these are both coming from a pro-life perspective, but they're kind of coming at it from different ways. One is called pro-lifers have momentum, but they need to move gradually. So this is kind of the, the gradual moving towards, you know, taking bits and pieces away from Roe v. Wade and things in the state level that can eventually not be overturned or something like that. But then the other side is this one, Alabama and Georgia are throwing down the gauntlet against Roe good. And so that's a guy from national review. He's basically writing saying, now's the time let's go for the jugular. Like, let's just, let's get everybody on record for what they feel about this issue. Cause there's no more important issue for our time. So again, guys, I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. And really, I really hope this is going to be a helpful resource for you as you engage in these conversations. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really do appreciate it. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google play and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. If you use the hashtag undaunted life, we'll be sure to find your post and give it a thumbs up. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, that would be a great thing for you to do. Leave us those five stars in a few sentences that let us know why you like what we're doing. I'm booking speaking engagements for the remainder of 2019 and the beginning of 2020. So if you want me to come speak on your podcast, to your men's group, to your conference, to your whatever, just hit me up, info at undaunted.life. Again, the email is info at undaunted.life. The website is www.undaunted.life, and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undaunted.life or Facebook dot com backslash undaunted life. Check out our free devotionals on the Uversion Bible app. Just search undaunted life under plans. And also we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is our song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links to this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>